Welcome to the Awesomers.com podcast. If you love to learn, and if you're motivated to expand your mind, and heck, if you desire to break through those traditional paradigms and find your own version of success, you are in the right place. Awesomers around the world are on a journey to improve their lives and the lives of those around them. We believe in paying it forward, and we fundamentally try to live up to the great Zig Ziglar quote, where he said, you can have everything in your life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. It doesn't matter where you came from, it only matters where you're going. My name is Steve Simonson, and I hope you will join me on this awesomer journey. If you're launching a new product manufactured in China, you will need professional, high-resolution, Amazon-ready photographs. Because Simo Global has a team of professionals in China, you will oftentimes receive your listings photographs before your product even leaves the country. This streamlined process will save you the time, money, and energy needed to concentrate on marketing and other creative content strategies before your item is in stock and ready for sale. Visit simoglobal.com to learn more, because a picture should be worth 1,000 keywords. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. This is Awesomers.com podcast episode number 21. And as always, to find show notes and details, you can go to Awesomers.com backslash 21. That's Awesomers.com slash 21. So today my uh, guest is the great Rich Goldstein. And Rich is a patent attorney, an entrepreneur, and a marketeer. He would say marketer, but I threw in the marketeer because it's fun. He works with e-commerce sellers to help them better protect their innovative products, as well as helping them avoid problems when sourcing products that they intend to sell. He is the author of the American Bar Association's Consumer Guide to Obtaining a Patent, and that's a book I highly recommend for any entrepreneur to give you kind of the basic overview of what the process of getting a patent is all about. We're really lucky to have somebody as smart and as capable as Rich joining us to talk about the process of finding patents uh, finding out about patents, learning if the product we want to sell has already got a patent on it, or even if it has a patent, can we still sell it? And if so, what are the conditions? There's so many things related to patents that this is going to be an exciting episode for you to learn lots about patents. Awesomers, it's Steve Simonson, and we're back on the Awesomers.com podcast. Uh, today, joined by special guest, Rich Goldstein. Uh, Rich, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? Doing great, and uh, thrilled to have you on today. And Awesomers, you're in for a treat today because uh, so often we talk about uh, product development and, and the intellectual property and patents and all the headaches that go along with that. And today we're hoping that Rich is going to give us some, some insights and clues into that, uh, that whole world, which is very murky and, and often scary for, for people who have never dealt with it. Rich, that's kind of your, your bailiwick, right? This is what your specialty, isn't it? It is. My specialty is patents and trademarks. But also, um, from what you just said, too, my specialty is helping people to not have it be so murky. So I really specialize in working with people to gain a better understanding of the IP issues that face them so that it's not so far, not so strange, not so scary. Yeah, so I definitely think this is one of the, the, the best parts of interfacing with somebody like Rich, who knows what he's doing, who is specialized in this particular category, because they can take the pain away, right? And isn't that what we all want? Uh, we know that when we're dealing with things that are complex or things maybe we just simply don't understand, that's a lot of pain, but we can make the pain go away by bringing in a, an expert like Rich. So, Yeah, and, 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 and there's two prongs to that too. Is uh, We can make the pain away. You can could, you could make the pain go away by handing something over to an expert, let's say like me, 
hate to call myself an expert, but I guess I am. You are. Um, and so it's great when we can delegate something to someone who can just handle it for us, right? But I also like to make the pain go away just by having people understand what they're doing and, 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 and not feeling the pain of confusion and of, of not knowing what to expect next. So I like to, to make the pain go away in that way as well. That's so such a good point. You know, they say ignorance is bliss, but I'll tell you, when I don't know something, particularly as it involves the legal stuff, it does not feel blissful. Yeah, I never feel blissful. Yeah, it <laughs> I just know feels something. like a nightmare, and I want it to go away quickly. And often, I will go to my happy place and and curl up in a little ball. So, so Rich, guess uh, let's take a step back and summarize, kind of, um, you know, who you are and what you do from the big picture, just so the audience can understand. Because I know you, I'm kind of glancing over that. Uh, tell us uh, who you are and what you do, please. Uh, well, um, who I am, I guess, and what I do in this realm is a, I'm a patent attorney. But I'm also a marketer and an entrepreneur and a business coach. So I, I'd like to think that I bring that well-roundedness to it when I'm working with other marketers uh, and other entrepreneurs, especially e-commerce entrepreneurs, uh, in that uh, you know, I am a patent attorney, but I'm also one of you in that sense, in that uh, I like to look at things from a, a practical perspective and not just from the perspective of patent attorney and is this patentable, is this not patentable, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I uh, um, have been passionate about educating people about the patent process for the last 20 or so years. Uh, I used to do a lot of seminars and uh, I created a series of videos about seven or eight years ago that tens of thousands of people have watched to, to understand the patent process. Uh, and the American Bar Association asked me to write a book to explain to entrepreneurs how patents work. So I wrote the ABA Consumer Guide to Obtaining a Patent, uh, which does just that. And uh, um, top quote on the back cover there, if you look, um, according to Frank Kern, it says, uh, and I think many people here probably know Frank Kern is, and it says, um, finally, a book about patents in plain English. And I'm really glad for that because that's what I set out to do when I wrote the book. That is a great accomplishment. And uh, we're definitely going to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, how that book came about and, and how people can apply it and, and really try to, you know, help people unlock this Rubik's Cube of, of patents and how it fits in with uh, a typical e-commerce entrepreneur. I, I think that's something that uh, people still struggle with. Uh, but let's even... Uh, in, in just a moment, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to dive into just a quick bit of Rich's origin story, where he came from, and learn a little bit about that, uh, and we'll do that right after this. Hey, Amazon Marketplace professionals, congratulations on your success to date. Your creativity, strategic vision, problem solving, and discipline have allowed you to build your own e-commerce business. Wouldn't it be great if you had more time to focus on the things that truly drive the sales and growth of your company? Instead of getting lost in a dozen different services and countless spreadsheets, what if there was one system that connected to your Amazon account and automatically gave you the information that you needed to make great decisions and really impact your business? Parsimony ERP can do that. 
Parsimony is the business operating system for your marketplace business. With Parsimony, you get true double entry bookkeeping, easy financial statements, full customer service tools, and item by item profitability, along with project and task management, and more features are being added all the time. Learn more at parsimony.com. That's parsimony, P A R S I M O N Y.com. Parsimony.com. We've got that. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Okay, we're back again, uh, Osmers. Uh, we're visiting today with Rich Goldstein, and he's talking to us a little bit about his expertise uh, in patent law and so forth. We're going to dive into some of those details because he's certainly an authority in that subject matter. But I always like to start kind of from the beginning. Rich, uh, where were you born? Where did you come from? Oh, I was born in Staten Island, New York. Boy, the accent would never give that away. Uh, well, it sounds like you you're noticed, right. um, through speech therapy, I've managed to eliminate 95% of my accent. <laughs> Is that right? Well, that must Not. be a, a New York 95% because us West Coasties can pick it up strong. Yeah. Uh, and I love it, by the way. Uh, when I greeted Rich uh, Awesomers out there this morning, when I greeted him on our call, I said, how you doing? Uh, because, you know, I like to fit in. And uh, so there you go. Uh, yeah. how, about your, how about your parents, Rich? Uh, w- what's their background? Um, so my parents were both born in Brooklyn, New York, and, uh, they, uh, my father is an engineer. Um, he, um, he was a mechanical engineer, worked for the city of New York for his entire career, um, designing the, the heating, ventilating and air conditioning systems for the various city buildings, the court buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, funny thing, um, since you ask about my, my, uh, uh, my parents and, and my background like that, um, my dad would explain anything to um, probably painful detail, any question I asked. If a three-year-old child asking about something, and he'd explain to me what relative humidity is. And so I think that's a, that's a very important part of my upbringing. Um, as a matter of fact, um, you know, one of the favorite stories about me um, when I was about two years old uh, they they said to to me, uh, you know, like Richard, your your diaper is wet, and my answer to them was, it must be condensation. <laughs> so it just has to make you wonder, like how, like w- w- the type of conversations I was having with my dad that it would occur to me, like hmm, moisture, condensation. So, but that came from having an engineer dad, and uh, uh, from. Um, I guess him just explaining everything in, in my environment around to me to such detail. Boy, I love that. And uh, for those awesomers keeping score at home, if you want to uh, measure relative humidity in a do-it-yourself environment, go find yourself a sling psychrometer. Everybody, <laughs> a psychrometer. So uh, I, yes. I, I haven't heard that on a podcast yet today. So, um, so let's fast forward. So uh, it sounds like you went to school because a lot of attorneys have done that. Tell us more yeah. about. Um, I did. I I, um, I went to a pre-engineering high school, and I studied electrical engineering in college. And around the same time that I started college, I also started a business. I was selling salon supplies to um, to beauty and manicuring salons in the area where my university was, Stony Brook University. And so I I, I really gained an interest in business. And at the same time, I found out that the reality of becoming an engineer would be that I'd be working on the same project day in and day out for maybe five years at a time where they give you one little piece of some big system and they say, here, design what goes between A and B. 
and then that's what you do for five years. Um, and that didn't seem interesting to me enough. And with my interest in business, I, I thought I would change my major and, and not continue studying engineering. But then I heard about patent law, which is where you need to be an engineer and, and, uh, and also a lawyer. And so I, I finished with electrical engineering and I had some fun doing that, believe it or not. Uh, then I went to law school. Um, and once I became a patent lawyer, I then got to work on different things every day. So I get to apply that engineering knowledge because you need to have it in order to understand technology and understand how things are different from other things and explain those differences. But I get to work on something different every day. So it was really a fulfillment of, of, uh, of that experience when I was in college of, of, of knowing that I wanted to be uh, working on different projects and not to be kind of stuck in a rut. And so it was really great the way that worked out. That's a fascinating solution to the problem. So I, I didn't realize the the full engineering background and degree, um, even though we've you know we've probably been running around in in various masterminds and circles for the last couple of years. I, I didn't remember that part of the story if you've told me. But what a perfect applicability to patent law. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it solves the exact problem of not having to deal with the same thing every day for five years because you get new stuff every day, right? And yet you get to apply that brilliant engineering in a real practical setting. Wow. Good. Good on you, mate. That's a good yeah, idea. It, it worked out well. And um, when I graduated law school, I started my own firm. So I got to uh, fulfill on that entrepreneurial side of me as well. Um, and just a cool little thing that happened alongside of that is um, as I was graduating law school and I decided I was going to start my own firm, I, um, uh, I realized that I was going to need clients. And most of the time when people start their own firms, it's because they were first working at a big firm and they were working for big clients. And so when they decided to leave, they were able to take some of that work with them. But in my case, I was starting from scratch. So what I did is I founded a magazine for inventors. So I launched a magazine that um, had all types of articles about inventing and patenting and prototyping and I sought to have that distributed in different ways at invention shows and at the um, patent libraries around the country and um, and and basically so what I did is I got a whole bunch of content out there and I was you know, prominently branded within the magazine so I generated uh, interest for myself as a patent attorney so uh, basically, I was doing content marketing in the mid-90s before there was even such a thing. That is a fascinating way to solve the problem, right? So did you ever read the book Guerrilla Marketing back in that time frame? I didn't. Yeah, so Guerrilla <laughs> Marketing would have, would have uh, shared that kind of really advanced concept of if something doesn't exist, right? If you have to create your market uh, out of thin air, you just, you just kind of go solve for X. And you did that by literally creating a magazine and putting it in front of your target audience. And obviously, you being uh, the authority in that particular setting, you, you know, you were the magazine publisher and probably uh, the lead advertiser, I'm suspecting. That got you a lot of credibility and, and potentially a really clever way to get started. Again, uh, you, your problem-solving techniques are quite ingenious. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. And there's more to the story, too. Maybe we'll talk about um, on another podcast. There's a, there's a way in which I leverage that and the magazine to, uh, uh, to create other opportunities as well. 
Um, so, Do tell. Yeah, let's let's dive into that because uh, you know we love. I love the intersection of entrepreneurial with the, the legal piece because that's truly unique. And for the customers listening at home, uh, as we stand by for more of Rich's story, we should remember that it's not common for attorneys to have the entrepreneurial business perspective. It exists. It happens, and Rich is a perfect example of it. But you know, I have fleets of lawyers who specialize in everything from customs to you know China to um, you know, obviously patent, uh, advanced patent litigation, which we use a different resource or, you know, startup patents, uh, and any kind of, uh, patent research would be a good resource for rich to take a look at or uh, project and, and so on and so forth. So there's lots and lots of attorneys and it's rare to have the really good combination of practical business and entrepreneurial insight plus the legal piece. So I love that. So tell me how, how did you leverage the magazine? So um, first of all, um, through the magazine, I began to get contacted by various other entities that saw what I was doing. So for example, um, I was contacted by the Invention Convention out of Pasadena, and they invited us to come out that. Uh, I was contacted by the Learning Annex in New York City because they had an invention course, but they, their instructor um, suddenly wasn't available. They needed someone to fill in. Um, and through the combination of a few of those items, uh, I, um, uh, so I ended up teaching a course on inventions in New York um, for the learning at Annex. And then um, later when I branched out to other cities, I, I contacted those learning annexes and told them what I was doing in New York City. And so I ended up doing that same course in Los Angeles and in San Francisco. Uh, and, um, and then through that invention convention contact that led to just a whole host of other opportunities that came about. So it was just like a, having an in into an industry where I was nobody. And then all of a sudden I had friends and colleagues and other people that were uh, kind of able to refer work to me and to provide opportunities for me to speak or to be involved in collaborative projects. So it just kind of grew upon itself. It's a really good example um, of taking that. I like to refer to that Zig Ziglar quote it's probably been uh, included in the top of this show, which is you can have everything you want in your life if you help enough other people get what they want. And ultimately, you are producing that magazine and you are teaching those classes to help other people get what they want. And then, yes. you know, the, the un, unexpected, you know, you didn't do it and say, I have to, you have to give me something in return. But the, the unexpected outcome is that, you know, people end up seeking you out and, and leveraging your own expertise. So I, I really do. Well, that, that's the only way that it could work, Steve. I mean, it's like when you, when you go out there and you contribute and you don't expect uh, anything in return, uh, first of all, that's real contribution. That's not looking for tit for tat where uh, I'm doing something in order for something else to happen. But it's also an abundance mindset. Uh, I mean, abundance mindset is all about, uh, well, it's the antithesis of scarcity. Scarcity meaning that there just isn't enough to go around and I have to be careful of what I do and what I give because I might lose out. And we can't all win. Uh, if I gain something, that means you must lose something or if you, uh, if you gain something that it might cost me something. Uh, you know, with abundance, it's not really about a lot. It's not about the notion of like this that there's uh, a big quantity. It's kind of about the non-issue 
of how much there is. Like, it just doesn't matter. I go out there and do my thing, and I can just trust in the fact that it's going to come back to me. And I don't have to watch for how it's going to come back to me because I'm trusting that it's going to. And to me, that's, that's something which not only really works in the, business, in the business world to come from abundance, but it also is a lot more peaceful than being in scarcity. <laughs> Boy, that is uh, so right. So I quite agree with you. And that is certainly part of the awesomer uh, mindset to, to know that we live in a world of abundance. And it, it's not, you know, if I get something, somebody else doesn't get something or vice versa. But just this very idea that your mind doesn't have to work as hard to be scared all the time, right? And, yeah. and that is a huge, huge thing. So well, well that's exactly it is, is the notion that you, you don't have to work at it. You don't have to work at at keeping it going and, and making sure that you don't end up on the street because you haven't been watching how it's coming back to you. Yeah, I, again, I just think that uh, that's such good insights. And I hope uh, folks out there are taking uh, careful notes and, and paying particular attention to this. Uh, as a uh, side note, we will have the, the show notes available for this episode. Uh, I believe this is episode number 21. So you can go to awesomers.com slash 21 to find the show notes and links to Rich's firm and, and maybe some of the other things that we talked about during the episode. Uh, Rich, as, as you, once you got into it and you started uh, getting into the ideas, uh, I'm just wondering if there was a, a, a day that maybe you looked back at and said, this was a, a, a pretty good day. Like, was there any um, just moment where you looked and said, you know, I'm, I've, I've arrived, you know, it, put that in quotes? Um, well, I, I could think of a bunch of um, different examples of that. And I guess it depends on what I mean by arrive. But um, in the early days of my, uh, my career, I, I played a pretty big game. And uh, I think, uh, uh, let's see, I graduated um, law school in 94. And um, by the middle of 95, I had opened an office in LA in a, in a, a townhouse right off of the Sunset Strip. And we had a hot tub craned into the roof. <laughs> and uh, I remember sitting in the hot tub there, looking out at kind of all the traffic on the Sunset Strip, people going to the House of Blues, going to, uh, back then it was uh, the, uh, uh, the Roxbury or the Roxy, forget, the Roxbury, I think. Yeah, um, it's the Roxbury and, back then. And by the way, I've been to that House of Blues right there on Sunset. Nice. Keep yeah. On. Yeah, it was, that was a great era. And I really enjoyed it back then. I was in my 20s and... And so I was up in my hot tub on the roof there, and I, and I said to myself, you know what? There's no one I graduated from law school with who's doing anything like this right now. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that is. Uh, so this uh, again, a, a very wise reminder that you know having a life worth living should be the objective, right? This this yeah. idea that we have to hashtag hustle ourselves until we die is a to me it's uh, it's a crazy notion. Doesn't mean we don't have to work hard. But let's make the work that we do worthwhile, and let's uh, have some time to enjoy it as well. So I, I love that that idea that you know there you are on the top of Sunset Boulevard in your twenties, uh, watching the world go by, on Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, you just evoked that memory by asking the question, which is cool. I hadn't thought about that in a while. I like it. Well, you know, those are uh, I I like to remind awesomers out there that from time to time we have to take our victory laps. Because these, the, the journey that we're on is just made up of moments that are made up of memories, right? That is something that has value to us in the long run. That, that particular money that you earned back then or the, you know, whatever the, the, the little details of that day-to-day -day life that you were leading back then, those things are going to fade away. It's not relevant today. It's the big picture memory. So I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. 
let, let's switch gears maybe. And was there ever a time when things were just not going so great that you're like, I don't know if I can do this. Maybe I need to go get a job at a regular firm or when you just simply wanted to give up. Did you ever have a day like that? Oh, certainly. You know, there's always been, I mean, being in any business, there's always the ebb and flow of it. And uh, yeah, there are times when cash flow comes to a low point and, and payroll is due and it's just, uh, and maybe even there's a few successive pay periods like that. And, and you watch your savings go down and down and you say, um, uh, uh Oh, (laughs) but you know, I've probably been through that, um, dozens of times over the last 25 years and, and it's just comes and goes. So, so yeah, there are always moments like that. It's just part of the, part of the journey, you know, to face the adversary and just keep on going. Um, so, Mm -hmm. Let, let me just ask you this, uh, before we kind of get into the authority part of the episode where we talk more about the patent law and stuff, uh, is, there any, is there any lesson that stands out from, from your journey that last 25 years or so that you've been uh, uh, running in uh, business and in, in the law practice and so forth? Um, well, I would say that it's all about relationships. Relationship is the foundation of accomplishment. Anything that you do no matter what field you're on, no matter what field you're in, is founded on relationships. It's like you can be the, the most brilliant mathematician uh, but if, if, and say in a university setting, but if you can't get along with your colleagues, um, if you can't form those relationships to get your work out there, no one's going to pay any attention. Um, and you can have great ideas and, um, you know, again, you need to create relationships in order to get those out into the world. So it's all about relationships and relationship is the foundation of accomplishment. Boy, I like that. That's a very good quote. People should uh, write that one down, frame it, and put it on the old wall because uh, relationships really are, uh, this is another kind of equity I refer to. Earlier we talked about, you know, knowledge equity or, or, or other types of things. This is, you know, relationships have equity as well. And it's, again, it's not even the, the concept of that we're trying to get something from that equity. It's just that it exists and we can, we can rely on it for help or support or our opportunity to help somebody else. It, there's so much to relationships. So I really appreciate you mentioning that. Um, so we're going to uh, come back right after another quick break and we're going to talk about a typical entrepreneurial challenge when it comes to facing patents. And we'll be right back after this. Empowering. The name says it all. Connecting e-commerce entrepreneurs with great people, ideas, systems, and the services needed to stay business dynamic and to grow. Empowery is a network, a cooperative venture of tools and resources to make you better at what you do. Because we love what you do. We are you. Visit Empowery.com to learn more. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Okay, we're back again, Awesomers, and we're talking with Rich Goldstein about uh, kind of his background and some of the things that he's gone through as an entrepreneur and as uh, running his own practice. Uh, but now we're going to talk a little bit more about his specialty and what makes him an authority in the particular space of patent law. So, uh, Rich, can you can you help me frame up the problem that a typical entrepreneur faces when it comes to patents? Let's say that they're going to sell in e-commerce and uh, and they they don't know do they need a patent. Uh, if they try to sell a product, how do they check if it's got a patent? Maybe you have some ideas of typical problems that we can talk about how they solve them. 
Yeah, well, the, the number one problem is is um, that entrepreneurs face when they they have an idea that they think they want to protect is not knowing how it works, like not knowing how the patent system works, and not knowing who to turn to. I think it's those two things that stall most people from following through and protecting uh, their products, protecting their inventions. Um, and so beyond that, though, uh, I think that the two main big buckets of, uh, of problems that entrepreneurs face as they're about to launch a product is wondering whether they can protect it and then also wondering whether they're infringing on someone who already has a patent or already has the rights to it. And so those two um, concerns really splinter off in different directions in figuring out um, um, kind of what their options are and kind of what the issues might be. Yeah, so as I think about it, let's, uh, let's say for the sake of discussion that somebody's found a product, maybe they're making some slight iteration on it, uh, but they, they're worried about it infringing perhaps on somebody else's patent. Can you give the broad strokes of the types of things that they need to do to uh, protect themselves in that, in that particular situation? Yes. Well, well first of all, let, let me say that to, to have a high level of certainty that you're not infringing will often take someone like me to help you break it down. Um, that's just, there's not, not much way around that, uh, is that if you want to really know if you're not infringing, it can get to be very expensive and it, it takes expertise to, to figure that out. But there are shortcuts. Um, and, and what you really ought to do is to um, use some of these shortcuts to see if you can um, figure out that your situation is maybe one of those kind of, um, how would I put it? It's kind of like a, um, a fun exception to that rule where you, where you realize like, oh, okay, it's not a problem at all. And it doesn't even need analysis. So the point is, is like some things need some pretty complex analysis. But sometimes you can find the easy answer and then you can skip all that analysis. So like, let me give you an example. So if you have a product with a patent number and if, you've, if you look up that patent number and you find out that the patent's expired, then you know, right off the bat, you know that you don't have a problem. Um, also, um, if you... Um, if you uh, do some research and you look up the, the related patents to a product and you find patents that show the, the concept, the general idea of it, and that they're more than 20 years old, you can bank on the fact that no one has a patent on the overall concept. Then the situation might be that some people have a patent on their specific variation or in some of the details or some of the improvements they've made from that general concept. But um, you know, whatever that that main concept is, if you find old patents, um, and when I say old, I mean 20 years or older is pretty safe, then that's a shortcut to knowing that, that um, you can go ahead and make something in that genre. You might need to be careful when you get too close to some of the more modern versions of it, um, but you can certainly know that, you can, uh, that there's an opening there for you to make a product in that category. So I like that in terms of uh, the, the shortcut ideas. And, and uh, just for everybody out there listening, I'm a big advocate in terms of having expertise to deploy instead of 
beating my brain uh, trying to figure this stuff out. And even after I try to make these decisions, you know, I would still be second guessing myself. So having experts uh, to help you with it is is a helpful thing. But Rich, maybe we can even just fly up to the thirty thousand foot view and help people understand that you know just because you have a patent on something doesn't mean it's not infringing on other people's patents. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. And and that's a that's a very important point that most people don't realize um, is that um, you know, it's a very common misconception where people will say. Um, well, I want to get a patent so that if the patent's granted, I'll then know that I'm not infringing on anyone else. And it it makes sense, right? I mean, if you think about it, um, if I'm different enough to be patentable, then that must be mean that I'm different enough that I'm not infringing, right? Makes perfect sense, but it's just not true. And I'll explain the way it works. Um, and there's an example. Um, actually, I showed you once before, Steve, as an example with the chair. So, um, Steve, if you invent a chair um, that has four legs um, and uh, a seat in the back, and let's imagine that no one had done that before, you can get a patent on that chair with four legs, a seat in the back. Um, but then if I come along a few years later and I say, you know what, um, that chair is great, but if we just had these things along the side to rest your elbows on, it would be that much better. So I invent armrests and I... Basically, I put it in my patent application for the, that chair with the four legs, the seat in the back, and the armrests. Now, the patent office will consider it, and they'll know about your patent for the basic chair, um, and they'll, they'll make the determination that I've made a significant improvement with these armrests. And, and it's a non-obvious improvement, as they would say, and we could talk about that a bit later. Um, and so then they would say, yes, it's patentable. Um, and they would grant the patent to me then for my improved chair. But the reality is I can't make my chair with those armrests without having the four legs, the seat, and the backrest. So therefore, I would be infringing your patent in the process of making mine. And now the patent office doesn't care that I'd be infringing. They just want to know that I've improved uh, in a non-obvious way. And if I have, they'll grant me my patent. So having a patent granted does not guarantee you're not infringing someone else because very often another patent can be the building block for yours. Um, it, in most cases, though, the building blocks are old. And when I say old, I mean at least 20 years old. And so typically your improvement is not going to infringe other patents. Um, there's no guarantee of that, and having your patent doesn't guarantee it. But it's not like in every situation where you have an invention, you are likely to be infringing because, of course, there were prior inventions. Usually those prior inventions are older and infringed as a yeah. practical matter. No, I'm sorry, and not and expired. Yeah, they've uh, passed their prime. Yes. Uh, so I, I do think this is an important point to, to say that, listen, the idea of having a patent is reasonable uh, because we want to protect something that's truly unique and, and uh, noteworthy. And there are um, legal thresholds that require something to be uh, unique, and you said original and so forth. And we may uh, talk about a little bit. We may talk a little bit about those in a moment. But I just want people to realize that just because you get a patent doesn't mean that you're not infringing on somebody else. And it's it's so often overlooked. And I, I've met a couple folks in the recent uh, uh, year or two where they had a patent. They thought they were you know king of the world with that patent, and they were out there slinging product. 
and they didn't realize that their patent infringed on somebody else's. Their total product did anyway. Yes. Um, and so they they ended up still having liability, and they never saw it coming. So that that's a, an important point. We've covered that. Thank you for the thorough explanation. I look forward to receiving my royalties from your armrests on my chair. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely, and 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 that's a good point too. That's how that situation normally is worked out. Is is um, when you've improved upon an existing product and there's a patent in force, typically that would mean that I would work it out with Steve so that I'd pay him royalties for his portion of the invention and then I can still um, exploit the improvement I've made in my improved chair. So I want to give you a pretty typical example of an entrepreneur where they're, they're ready to sell online, perhaps they're already selling online, and they maybe even sell on the Amazon marketplace or the eBay marketplace. One of the common things that they get is a, an intellectual property challenge or a patent challenge that somebody files and says, hey, we have just filed for a patent on this. We're coming to get you. You better stop selling that. Um, if, if I came to you with that kind of problem, what, what general uh, uh, line of thinking would you take to address that problem? Well, first of all, if someone has only applied for a patent, then they shouldn't be able to stop you from selling it. So just applying for a patent doesn't give you the rights to stop anyone from making, using, or selling the product. That's what an, an issued patent would give you, all those rights. And um, so you know, all things being fair, um, and we don't necessarily know that Amazon is going to be fair, uh, they shouldn't take the side of someone who just has a patent application because there's no telling what's going to happen to that. First of all, it hasn't been decided if they're going to get a patent. And it also hasn't been decided what the scope of that patent is going to be. When I say scope, what I mean is what actually is covered by it. So just as we were describing before the scenario with the chair being for four legs, a seat, um, and a, a backrest, it's very possible that um, the, the patent that Steve ends up getting is not for that simple combination, but it's for the backrest having three vertical slats and the seat having a, a, um, a rigid perimeter and a flexible, um, and a flexible seat portion. So it, it could be that because of other prior art, other chairs that came before Steve's chair, the patent becomes relatively limited. And so none of that's determined until the patent is approved by the patent office. So um, I haven't seen this scenario myself, but I, I couldn't imagine Amazon justifiably taking the position or taking the side of a, of a person who simply applied for a patent. Yeah, so I definitely, I, I think that's a, a good perspective to have. And everybody just remember that Rich is just sharing information with us. This is not uh, uh, firsthand legal advice because he's not been retained by you. Uh, but I, I just want to say from my own perspective that these types of patent threats are are levied out pretty often, whether it's from other competing sellers directly or sometimes even escalated through Amazon. And my opinion is until you have the patent number, until you can show us a patent, then I don't care what you filed for. Uh, you don't have a patent protection on it just yet. And, yeah, so that, like and that's really the right way to look at it. Um, that's the way court would look at it. Um, but the, the, the real question is like, well, Amazon and, and their own uh, system for evaluating these complaints, like whether, whether reason will come into it or not. 
<laughs> like the the people on the team that are evaluating that situation may very well have just been dealing just before they received the IP complaint they were dealing with a, a listing hijacking or some other issue and so they're not IP experts and uh, uh, we can only hope that they handle these things in the way that they should be handled yeah, that's uh, that definitely is uh, another episode we'll have about uh, how the crazy hijinks that we see happening, uh, rightly or wrongly, they're happening uh, on Amazon and other platforms. So, Rich, let's let's keep talking about this concept of patents. And let, let's say that we we've we've designed a product and it's it's um, patentable. What, what's that process look like from the high level? Uh, just so that entrepreneurs out there understand. What are the steps and the general timings and things like that involved? Okay. Well, um, the biggest and most important step in the patent process is preparing the patent application. So a patent application isn't like a form that you fill out, like a job application, um, which, uh, you know, I don't even know if those still exist, Steve. <laughs> you know, a, a physical job application form. Everything is done online these days, but... Uh, anyway, the point is that it, it's not, a, there's no form, there's no uh, series of fields that you fill in the blanks, like my invention is blank, and et cetera, et cetera. It's more like a 20 to 50 page document with drawings that explains what the invention is, shows uh, how it's different from things that have been done before, and basically, basically starts the, the process of having the patent office consider your invention to be new and different enough to be worthy of a patent. So patent application is a super involved document. Really, the only way to do it successfully is to have it prepared by a patent attorney that's skilled in doing these things. Um, and so that's the most critical part of the, um, the process is preparing and filing the patent application. Once it's filed, then it's patent pending. Then it gets at some later point to be reviewed by a patent office examiner. Uh, and then once that examiner reviews the um, uh, the patent application, it may be accepted, uh, it may be rejected. And if it's rejected, then there is a, a an opportunity for the um, uh, for, for the um, applicant to fight that rejection. And when they fight the rejection, uh, hopefully we we get to convince the patent office that it's actually worthy of a patent. Yeah, so it's almost like a little trial, right? It, it's yeah. you 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 build your case and you you write all of this stuff down, literally from blank sheets of paper, the concepts, the designs, even the the drawings. And if anybody, uh, if you haven't already actually seen a patent, I highly recommend that you go, you know, to, and check out. Just search for you know patents and and look up some of these patents and see how they're done. It's extraordinarily complex and quite interesting. Uh, many of the drawings are. To me, crazy. I know they, they serve a purpose and it's all about showing clear definitions and details and so forth, but many of them just seem to be absolutely worthless when I look at them as a hmm. lay person. But yeah. uh, I, I haven't seen uh, riches uh, per se in this uh, case, but many patent applications, I'm like, this was a waste of time. But either way, yeah. that's kind of building your case. And then you, you take it to the judge, which is your, your, um, the USPTO examiner, I suppose. And they determine through their own research whether or not they think it's a good patent or a bad patent. And if, if they say, yeah, it's a go, that process is still two, three, four years? How, how long is that roughly? No, on average, it's about two years. 
All right, so let's call it two years. If they say, no, you're a no-go, then you got to go through the appeal process. I'm sure that doesn't take away time. That probably adds a little time. Uh, yes. How would you handicap a, an appeal process if you have to do it? Well, I mean, um, the, the when, when we talk about appeals, though, um, th there's really two levels to that. I mean, the most typical is the response, which goes back to the same examiner, which you would think, well, what good is that? He's just going to say the same thing over and he's going to reject it again. But not typically. I mean, t I would say generally the odds flip is if most of the time there's an initial rejection, most of the time when we present a, a good argument, we're able to flip the examiner and get them to approve the patent. Oh, I'm um, surprised. Appeals involve going above the head of the examiner, and they're very rarely taken. I mean, I, I can count on one hand the number of times that I've, I've followed that course of action. Usually, these things can be worked out effectively with the examiner. Gotcha. Okay, so we have a, a general lay of the land there where from idea, there's, it seems to me there's probably an evaluation step where you know, somebody says, I've got this idea. I don't know if I should bother with this whole process. Do you, do, is there some evaluation piece of the puzzle that uh, we should talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's important because before you jump into the patent process, it really pays to see what your, your chances are and what, what your options are. So generally what we want to do is find out about what you have in mind doing with your product um, and kind of what your different notions and ideas are of it. Then do some detailed research to see what's the best prior art we can find. And by prior art, I mean things that came before you. So other patents in particular that came before your invention. And that would help us figure out uh, not only if it would be a waste of time to pursue a patent application, to, to put all that time and, and, and effort into preparing a patent application, and that's where the big expense is, but also it helps us steer the process. So it's kind of like if you came to me and you said, I have this idea for this, um, this shovel and it's got um, features A, B, C, and D, um, we could, if we jumped ahead and did a patent application, we might give equal time to A, B, C, and D. Uh, but if instead we did research and we found out that features A and C are pretty common in the prior art, then now when we prepare the application, we put our best foot forward with regard to features B and D. Because now we know what's, what's different, we know what to emphasize and how to sell it. It's like if we're, you know, imagine we're trying to sell like A, B, C, and D are so different and so great. Patent office examiner says, well, wait, um, A and C are right here. We're like, oh, no, 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 we meant B and D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it just makes it makes more sense for us to, to, to provide a strong showing for the things that really are different uh, from the beginning. And so we, that's one of the advantages we gain by evaluating and doing good prior art research. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And again, this speaks to the idea that, you know, this is above the, the average person's uh, skill set, in my humble opinion. The, the idea that, you know, we, it's one thing to consider doing a provisional patent, and we'll talk about what that is and what purpose it serves with Rich uh, here in a second. But uh, I, I personally wouldn't even bother with that uh, process myself. But I really do want to suggest that people consider using experts, and, and I certainly would recommend Rich as one of those experts, to do the actual patent evaluation, and then if you pursue it, then get into the patent process. Without it, I think that it's just up open to so many problems. And later, as you try to enforce your patent on somebody, you may find somebody else challenge that patent 
and end up getting it voided uh, potentially. Have you ever heard of that happening, Rich? Well, absolutely. And, and that's um, you know, patents are presumed to be valid having gone through the process and being reviewed by an examiner, but they're always open to challenge. There are various ways to challenge the patent. And in any real litigation, so when there's a patent infringement lawsuit, um, you're suing someone saying that, um, that they're infringing your patent, their defense is always going to be invalidity. They're always going to try to make the case that the patent shouldn't have been granted because that's their way out of trouble that's that's their their pathway to to getting out of their infringement trouble is saying that the patent's invalid. So yes, there's always the possibility of of, uh, of invalidity. A couple other things, though, um, touching on what you mentioned, in terms of of using experts. Yes, the value of any patent is how well it's written, um, and there is a lot of nuance that goes into not only getting a patent successfully through the patent office, but also having one that covers what you need it to cover. So um, what I would say is, yes, use experts when there's value at stake. So in any project, you always have to consider what's the value at stake. If it's an e-commerce listing or it's a, a, a product that you're going to sell online, you really have to think of what's the upside before you consider whether it's worth getting people that can really do it well, do it right. Um, I mean, sometimes people approach me to help them with a situation where it's for a lower value product. It's for a product which isn't really worth much to them. And they don't even see a huge upside. Um, just perhaps another one of the products that they sell to kind of help cover their monthly nut. Uh, and so I tell them it's probably not worth um, pursuing patenting on this. It's not worth getting me involved in it because there isn't enough value at stake. So uh, I think the thing to do with any invention or any product is to always be real about what the value is at stake. Sometimes you can get really attached to a cool new idea, uh, but you want to be real with yourself about what the actual value is at stake and whether it pays to pay people to really make it happen, or, or maybe there just isn't enough upside and you should focus on other things. Boy, it's such uh, such a good piece of wisdom right there. So, uh, one of my axiom number fourteen is: is the juice worth the squeeze? And <laughs> if you do not think that there's a sufficient upside to invest in a product to to bring it to patent and go through the whole process, then you shouldn't bother with that product to begin with. Or if you do, just limit your you know expenses and exposure. And I would definitely say that you know you really have to have some positive upside and long term upside with the product that you're going to go through the patent process. Uh, that's, that's for sure. So is the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, very, very good wisdom. So um, I'd, I'd like to hit on a couple other things please. though yeah, that, that I think you opened up through the last um, um, discussion. So a few things that I think everyone should know. Uh, number one, when we mentioned provisionals, so what a provisional patent application is, is it's a stepping stone toward getting a full utility application. So utility application is the way in which you ultimately protect a useful invention that has some functional differences. So we can take a, a, an early step and do a provisional application, which gives you a year to file that utility. So it gets your foot in the door. Um, now, the caveat with provisional applications is they give you priority, but that priority is only as good as it is well-written. Um, the patent office doesn't examine it. They're not going to tell you, hey, like, 
you need to write more here, you need to have more detail here. So it's gonna go on file at the patent office, and um, if it's not well-written, it will just give you a false sense of security. You'll just say, well, I filed my provisional, I guess I'm good. But the truth is you might not be. So um, beware of, of a shortcut provisional. Um, if you're going to do a provisional, still make sure that it's, it's, it's well-written, because otherwise, it's just giving you that false sense of security. So there's that. Um, other thing important to mention is the importance of filing your application before you publicly disclose your invention, before you start selling it. Um, if you start selling it before you file the patent application, you will lose the rights immediately in most of the world. Um, in the US, there is technically still a one-year grace period. Um, so like uh, worst case if you if you start selling it and you haven't filed a patent application within a year you are absolutely out of luck and I see so many people lose because they don't know about this um, even within that year there are ways in which you could lose the rights to it um, so the safe bet is to file before you start selling it and uh, um, a well-written provisional will stop that clock for you. So if you file that provisional um, and you follow it through by doing that utility when you need to do it, then you'll be okay. But again, uh, as I said, the priority you get is only as good as it is well-written. So it, it, that provisional has to be done well for it to basically get your foot in the door at the patent office um, and get past that issue of you starting to sell the invention publicly. Boy, that's a very important takeaway there. So even myself, I didn't really realize that the provisional and how well it was written was so important to the, the whole kind of defense of this uh, patent in its future. So this is just another reason why being educated about it. And I want to take another minute to, uh, to share with everybody that Rich's book, The ABA Consumer Guide to Obtaining a Patent. And I like the subtitle because it, it spoke to me when I first uh, got a copy from Rich. The, a practical resource for helping entrepreneurs and innovators protect their ideas. And the fact that it's it's a pretty short read, which is nice, I have to say, you know, it's it's already a very um, intimidating subject. And so to come up, you know, with a, some sort of, you know, big fat law book would have just been, uh, you know, I, I would just want to check out immediately. But the idea that it's, you know, well-written and I think your endorsement from Frank, Frank Kern calling it, uh, plain English is is a really uh, really well earned definition. So, uh, can you tell us about you know how how long has that book been out and who who you think is served best by reading it? Sure, the, um, the book has been out just about two years. It came out in um, in August of uh, of twenty sixteen, and and by the way, the principles in there they don't date themselves, so they're not. Uh, the 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 principles in there are exactly the same today. Nothing has changed in the law that makes it less relevant, because it's really all about understanding the concepts so that you can make good decisions uh, with regard to patents. Um, if you read this book, it'll put you in the the 99th percentile in terms of what people out there know about patents. Um, I mean, I often say that when people say that the patent process is costly that the biggest cost in the patent process is people's misinformation about patents. That's where they spend money on the wrong things and for the wrong reasons. And um, you know, so frankly, uh, you know, one of the things I, I, I wrote this book for 
was for the, the busy entrepreneur. And that um, before this book came out, really the only mainstream title um, that people were turning to is a book called Patent It Yourself, which is like a 500-page book that goes into extreme detail about how to write a patent application when, I mean, in my opinion and the opinion of, of most others in this field, you can't really do an effective job at writing a patent yourself. So the best part of that book was typically that you, in the process of doing it, you learn a lot about the mechanics of how patents work, and that could be useful to you when you hire a patent attorney to help you do it. But who wants to read a 500-page book and learn all the details about how to do surgery when you're just going to hire a surgeon to begin with? So what I set out to do was write a book that a real entrepreneur would read who doesn't have 30 hours to read a book like that. They'd rather spend maybe four hours and get the concept so that when they do hire someone to do their surgery, they know what to ask for, what to look for, and how to get the most out of their money. So that's what I wrote the book for. Um, and then just in terms of uh, the cost of it, it's uh, the, the ABA really underpriced it. It's kind of funny. The ABA charges for most law books like $100, $200, $300. And, and a lot of times my colleagues will say, hey, I just published a new book on patent damages. Will you buy a copy? And then I look and it's a couple hundred dollar book and I want to do my friend a favor, but I don't know that I need that book for $200. And meanwhile, they price this book at $20. And uh, on Amazon, as you know how Amazon plays with prices, most of the time it's, it could be $13, it could be $17, but rest assured, it's under 20 bucks. So there's no way to not get your money's worth. That's from, amazing. From yeah, so I, I definitely want to you know, kind of reinforce the fact that you know, having a core education for anyone seeking a patent, even though I still highly would always recommend hiring an expert to, to do the process, but having that education makes you a manager who can help with the process and understand the process. And it probably could even help accelerate the amount of time or, and, and reduce the cost because instead of you having to be explained the basics over and over through a, a typical process, you'll already be armed with some, some information. So I think money well spent for sure. Yeah, and absolutely. It, I mean, just one insight on, on that is like, please. Typically, when I'm quoting clients, I, and I, I usually work on flat fees with regard to patent projects, um, I'm quoting based upon what I expect the project to be, including um, how clear the person I'm working with is on, uh, on their concept and, and on what they want. And if they could really communicate to me well what they want and what they're looking for, and we're on the same page, then, I, then, then what I'm quoting, I'm seeing it as a, a project that's going to take up less of my bandwidth than if I'm working with someone who just really has no idea what they want, and, and I know it's going to involve more conversations for me to really extract from them what we plan on doing. So absolutely knowing the process will pay off a hundredfold in that regard. Yeah, I can see that uh, in, in absolute terms that without, you know, so it's always about education. We talked about, you know, knowledge, equity, and so forth. Without you understanding the basics, you have to be educated and you're paying your attorney pretty significant amounts, certainly more than 20 bucks uh, by the hour to educate you. So why not get uh, the basic education now? We'll make sure that in the show notes, we get the links out there uh, for all of you guys out there so you can uh, get a look at this. I definitely recommend it. Uh, Rich, before we go, and we're, we're gonna be running out of time here pretty soon, not that the, the tape will cut off, but uh, 
I, I wonder if you could give me uh, any advice about your view of the world as it relates to patent trolls. This is a, a term that people hear very often. Maybe first you can tell us what a patent troll is from your perspective, and then give me uh, your thoughts about you know the State of the Union as it, as it regards and relates to uh, patent trolls. Okay, so um, patent troll is considered, well, basically the way that this whole situation came about is uh, certain entities started buying patents of all kinds, and especially some very broad patents, maybe patents that came about at the beginning of the information age or in the, let's say in the, in the mid nineties. And, and so they covered some very broad concepts and even how emails are transmitted or before people were even thinking about shopping carts, it could be for the idea of a shopping cart. And so then they, they go about approaching everyone who's using a shopping cart and saying, you're infringing my patent, you need to pay, right? So, so this was a situation that had been developing over the past couple of decades. And um, there are some pretty egregious examples of that, that we've all seen. And, and through that, what came about was this term patent troll. And the way that they define a patent troll is, well, it's a company that they don't make anything. They don't actually make any products. They just own patents and they go after people for those patents. And so there's a whole backlash against patent trolls. And uh, so there's been attempts uh, at making rules and there have been some rules fashioned to try to curb this problem of patent trolls. But you know, let's look at it from another perspective. Um, every guy who developed something in a garage and said, I want to patent this, so that if a big company tried to steal my invention, I could go after them, is a patent troll, by definition. Because they're a guy who doesn't actually make a product, they're just someone who had an idea and patented it, and then if some big company does it, they wanna enforce their rights. So basically, this whole notion of patent troll, yes, I get that it's a nuisance in certain circumstances, but there's a bit of throwing out the baby with the bathwater in the sense that we're undermining the American dream of being a person with an invention that can go up against the big guy by being able to protect his idea. So there's definitely misuses and there's definitely people that, um, that assert patents in the wrong times for the wrong reasons and unfairly. But um, one of the things we have to be careful of is we still wanna protect the little guy who had an idea and maybe he doesn't have the budget to produce his product um, and, uh, and he still should be able to enforce his rights against, uh, against the big guy. Well, that definitely is the purpose of a patent, right? Is to give somebody who's actually got something noteworthy and creative and, and worthwhile to be, that deserves protection and uh, that, that's the purpose of it. In my perspective, we have, we have faced dozens and dozens and dozens of letters from basically law firms that, that uh, to me, represent patent trolls. And these are people who procure patents. Most of them are, are software-related, which I, I find significant difficulty with software patents in particular because uh, the, the idea of how you move bits and bytes is purely theoretical in, in so many ways. Um, even the one-click patent that Amazon had, I found it laughable that, you know, uh, that was something that was patent worthy. Now, again, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not the patent uh, examiner, 
But we, uh, over the course of time, have had dozens and dozens and dozens of letters where the law firm will send us a thing and it'll say, hey, um, uh, we got good news and bad news. Uh, the bad news is you're infringing on our patent because of your left-hand search navigation menu, uh, which was not unique to us or anyone else for that matter. Uh, the good news is uh, if you write us a check for 10 grand, we'll go away now. Otherwise, we're going to take you to court. And that's kind yeah. of the move of these totally. patent, uh, in my, I'm going to call them patent trolls. I'm not putting words in your mouth. And they've also found this venue down in Texas where it's become mm -hmm. kind of the patent troll capital. I don't know why the judges are, are so conducive to allow these sorts of things to happen. But from my perspective as, a, as an entrepreneur, there has to be some way to find balance between good, solid patents. And the, to me, some of the, the very at least hollow on the face of them, software process and, and, and some of those things. Uh, what's your thoughts? How do you feel about software versus some of the mechanical things in the world? Well, uh, let, let me um, say a few things about that. I mean, first of all, um, the pendulum, uh, like as a reaction to all of those problems that you're mentioning, um, the pendulum has swung pretty far in the other direction. Um, so, um, I mean, first of all, the solution is better patents. Right, it's like you talk about the one-click patent, et cetera. Um, the solution is is better patents. And over the past decade, the the patent office has gotten uh, a lot better about quality control and having applications given uh, a secondary review to make sure that that um, patents like that don't get issued right off the bat, and that um, that we we have more quality patents in play. Um, but now, as far as the patent, uh, as far as the pendulum swinging pretty far in the other direction as a reaction, um, there's um, uh, there was a case a couple of years ago in the U.S. Supreme Court that um, was a pretty strong reaction to that situation where you have um, software patents that cover some pretty big and common concepts, and they fashioned some rules about abstract ideas and app and and labeled a whole bunch of different ideas or abstract ideas as unpatentable, which has really undermined some of the potentially more worthy patent processes or, or made it so that it's become very difficult to patent software. Because yes, indeed, some things are very basic and should be knocked out because of, of another concept which we haven't talked about, which is obviousness. Obviousness um, is a reason to reject any patent application. If it's obvious, it shouldn't be granted. Even if the exact thing hasn't been done before, if it's just an obvious variation, it should not get a patent. Um, but for whatever reason, the uh, Supreme Court fashioned some pretty uh, rigid standards that have made it so that even very clever processes are not patentable or, or they're having a really hard time getting them through the patent office because of that. So like I said, the pendulum has swung pretty hard against software patent, uh, patents in the, in the past few years. And um, so yes, there are definitely clever things and clever processes that should be afforded a patent uh, to protect the people that innovated them and to encourage them for, um, to innovate things like that in the future. Um, but currently, um, it's currently the situation is that there are a lot of things that are very worthy that are not getting patents because of how far the pendulum swung in June of 2014. That's fascinating. Uh, well, it definitely sounds like we've got uh, uh, lots more to talk about in a, a future episode, Rich. Uh, I definitely know that uh, 
and I always would tip my cap to you just in terms of your knowledge and bow to your wisdom for sure on this topic. But uh, I really enjoy the idea that we can debate this topic of uh, you know patent trolls and, and their applicability and, and understanding where the pendulum is. I love this stuff. Uh, before we go, Rich, do you have anything, maybe any last words of wisdom uh, in a general sense for our awesomer community out there? Well, two things. First of all, um, I'm realizing when you asked in the beginning about my parents and how they shaped my path, I only talked about my father. So I just want to acknowledge my mom for um, she's a people person. And so um, my dad's the technical guy. My mom was the people person. So the relationship side of things I really got from her and all that wisdom about being um, being good to people and and giving and contributing to others. So uh, so there's that wisdom and and that also just reinforces the relationship is the foundation of accomplishment aspect of it. So I want to say that and um, just in terms of final words of wisdom about the patenting um, side of things, um, that is just the more you learn about how it works, the more um, options you'll have. Kind of like with awareness comes choice. So the more you know, the better options and decisions you'll be able to make. But once you know how to look up a patent and see when it expires, now all of a sudden you have the option of perhaps waiting for the expiration to start making the product. Or once you know that expired patents are a fair game, like now you have the option to make a product that had a patent number on it uh, that happens to be for a 30-year-old expired patent. And there's a lot of people that don't have that choice because they didn't know that. So that would be my final advice really is to gain as much awareness you can as, about how all this works because that will give you more choices in your business. Very good advice, Rich. And a nice last-minute save uh, with the shout-out to mom before uh, we get uh, done here. Uh, thank you again for joining me, Rich. And awesomers, uh, we will be right back after this. Catalyst 88 was developed to help entrepreneurs achieve their short- and long-term goals in e-commerce markets by utilizing the power of shared entrepreneurial wisdom. Entrepreneurship is nothing if not lessons to be learned. Learn from others. Learn from us. I guarantee that we will learn from you. Visit Catalyst88.com because your success is our success. A giddy up. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Wow. What a great conversation with Rich Goldstein. Uh, you know, one of the, the best, you know, patent type resources you can have for especially a startup type of company. When you're trying to learn about this stuff, uh, it, this is the right kind of solution. Rich's uh, company and his firm uh, is really a wonderful resource and somebody that I trust to help guide people through this process, which can be very uh, complicated and overwhelming to the average entrepreneur. I, I just love the fact that he's got an engineering mind combined with the understanding of the legalese to get patents through the system. Uh, or if you're looking to sell a product, you know, he's a good guy to kind of give you the the skinny on is this uh, a potentially going to violate somebody else's patent? Am I going to get in trouble for selling this? If you have those kind of concerns, you know, a little bit of money up front to kind of figure that stuff out is way, way better than ending up with tons and tons of products. I know people who have 15,000, 85,000 units of inventory. Those are two different examples, by the way. They have inventory of patent infringing products. And they just want to get their money back, but the patent holder is, has no time for that. So patents are a really, really important thing. And I'm thrilled you guys joined us here on episode 21 of the awesomers.com podcast. 
Go to awesomers.com slash 21 for relevant show notes and details. That's awesomers.com backslash 21. Well, we've done it again, everybody. We have another episode of the Awesomers podcast ready for the world. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that you've enjoyed our program today. Now's a good time to take a moment to subscribe, like, and share this podcast. Heck, you could even leave a, a review if you wanted. Awesomers around you will appreciate your help. It's only with your participation and sharing that we'll be able to achieve our goals. Our success is literally in your hands. Thank you again for joining us. We are at your service. Find out more about me, Steve Simonson, our guest, team, and all the other Awesomers involved at Awesomers.com. Thank you again. Awesomers.com.